Hey, we're really excited. We're getting ready to start a new series, and, and we want to talk about this is church. Uh, we want to talk about what the church is and what the church actually looks like. Because I, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that what we believe and understand about something determines how we behave towards it. So what we believe about something determines how we react and how we move and how we do what we do. And, and, and here's the truth is every church is unique because the people inside the church is unique. And we've got a lot of misconceptions about what the church is in our culture. We've got a lot of misconceptions about how the church is supposed to work in our culture. We've got a lot of misconceptions about how the church operates and moves and works. And, and we've brought a lot of cultural understanding into a biblical concept. And, and so the church in America is often shaped more by American culture than it is by what the early church actually did. And so one of the things that we believe is, is we believe that here at Grace Marietta, we are a modern day expression of an early church movement. That we are a modern expression of what started with Jesus and the disciples and expanded and grew from there. And so we take our cues, not just in what we believe, but also in how we operate from the early church. We look at not just what they said and what they did, but we actually look at their models. What was the model of the early church? How did they do what they did? How did they operate in the way that they do? And, and we believe that when we encounter truth, we encounter God. And so when we encounter the truth of what God speaks about his church, of who he calls us to be in his church, then we also encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit who meets us in that place and then equips us and empowers us to go out and, 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 and change the world. And so we're excited about what God's doing at Grace. If you guys have been around for a while, there's a lot of fun things happening at Grace. We, almost, we had almost 500 people here last Sunday on Easter Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Um, there's just so much growth happening, so many good things, new disciples, new, new life, new salvation, right? We, there's just all this good stuff happening around here. And so we want to talk about what does it mean for us to be the church? Notice I use the word us, because here's the American belief of the church, is oftentimes that the church is a building and a staff. So the church is about the people that are the professional Christians, right? Um, we, we always joke that like, I, 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 couldn't be an, I, I couldn't be a Christian unless I, somebody paid me to be a Christian, right? Like I had to go through like this intermediate program of being a pastor so that I could actually be discipled and God could work in me, right? Uh, there's, there's this idea of like the church staff is the one that makes the church who the church is. And so the way that we choose our church is we look for the most dynamic and, and greatest church staff that we can find. We look for the most comfortable building. We try and find the one with really nice cushions, which ours are a little bad, I'm sorry. We, we try and find the one with the best coffee, with the best student program, with the best kids program, with the best singer on the stage, with the best. And we gauge everything on like whatever the best thing I can find, that's, that's what I want. But the Bible has a completely different concept of the church. The Bible says the church is the people. The church is not a few of us. The church is all of us. And if you track back through church history, what happened is in the year 313 AD, Constantine was the emperor, and Constantine introduced Christianity as the religion of the day. It was called the Edict of Milan. And when he announced the Edict of Milan, what he started to say was that Christianity is now institutionalized. 
Because at that point, Christianity was this movement that operated on the fringes of culture, that operated on the outside of society, that was moving and working and growing and multiplying through persecution, through pain, through woundedness, through brokenness. And what Constantine did is he said, Christianity is now uh, going to sit in the center of culture. It's now going to be the thing that drives culture. And what we're going to seek now is power and not service. We're going to figure out how Christianity takes over through power. And we could track all throughout the history of the church and tell story after story of how power has corrupted the institution of the church. I could tell story after story of how the church as an institution has failed when the church as a movement has flourished. Does that make sense? And so we've sought the wrong things in the wrong ways over and over and over again. And what's happened is the church, particularly in America, has been infected with a lot of cultural things. And so we've carried cultural competency into the way that we run the church, into the way that the church operates, into the way that the church moves and works, and into what we believe about the church. And if we believe things about the church, it causes us to act as if those things are true, right? And so we've created a culture where the church has become what it's not supposed to be. Um, I'll give you a couple examples of that. The first is professionalization of the church. The church has become this thing. We were joking backstage um, with David and some of the guys, like um, the Holy Spirit only shows up when there's a little bit of a smoke machine in the back, right? Like, like if the smoke pops up, like, like uh, there, was a, there was some kind of comic recently that said smoke machine breaks at church, Holy Spirit can't show up, right? Uh, we, we've, we've gotten to this place where we've professionalized the church, where there is an expectation that I'm going to come in here every single week and there's going to be a professional presentation presented to me. That we're not going to mess up the songs. That this pastor is going to tell some interesting stories that are going to keep me occupied for 30 to 35 minutes. But if he goes 40, that's not professional enough and we've gone too long. Uh, that there's going to be a professional kids program that's going to do things that are, is going to compete with Disney. Uh, that there's going to be a youth group that's going to be doing amazing things and kids' minds are going to be blown. And there's this professionalization of the church. And with that comes some consequences. So with that comes a belief that the church isn't for all of us and that what we need to do is just get people to church. And so oftentimes our greatest sign of obedience now in our American church culture is that I got to bring somebody to the professionals so that they can deal with them. Right? So our greatest act of obedience becomes I just got to get somebody here so that he can hear this guy and listen to these songs and be in this kid's program and do this kind of thing because once the professionals get a hold of him, something good's going to happen. Now, I, can I just confess to you, we're not that professional. The second thing that's happened is individualization. With individualization, what's happened is the church has often become I need to find an application every single Sunday of what this means for me. So somebody gets up and preaches, somebody gets up and sings, somebody shares a word, all of these different things happen, and the application always is a me and not a we. In the early church, the application was always a we. The question was not, what do I do with this message? How do I live differently? The question was, how do we live differently together? 
How do we do life together and differently because of what God is saying in our midst? How does this change the way that we move and work and have our being? How does this change the way that we live in the community? How does this change the way that we operate on Sunday mornings? How does this change everything? The application was not a, I I need to walk away from here and I need to sit and discern what this means for me. The question was, what does this mean for us? How do we receive this? How do we receive this together? How do we encourage each other to obey? How do we urge each other on in following Christ? How do I walk beside the people in our community that are hurting? In in the early church, the model was everybody brought something to the table when the church gathered. Everybody. Not, there wasn't like one guy that stood up for 45 minutes and talked. Everybody brought something to the table. And so if you don't show up to church, somebody misses out on the blessing. Somebody misses out on receiving a word from you, receiving a prayer from you, receiving encouragement from you, receiving hope from you, receiving just, maybe it's finances from you. Whatever it is, we begin to pray for one another and we begin to seek the good of the collective and not the individual. In American culture, we've been taught from day one to look out for number one. We've been taught from day one that the individual is more important than the collective. And the early church has a completely different model. The model is that the individual lays down their life for the collective. Like, can you imagine a culture where everybody, this is what Acts chapter two says, the church got together, they brought everything that they owned, they brought the deeds to their homes, their cars, their bank accounts, they set it all on the table and said, I trust everybody to distribute this fairly. Like, we don't even have an imagination for how that could possibly work, do we? Like, there is none of us in the room that are ready to do that. We have no imagination. Like, there may be somebody who's like, well, we could talk about it. But I've got like 300 questions before I'm willing to do that, right? We just don't have an imagination for looking out for the collective instead of the individual. The third thing is consumerism. The American church is full of consumerism. Um, The truth is, we are consumeristic people. We can get everything at the press of a button. It's downloadable, it's fast, it's easy, it's quick, and if this church isn't meeting my needs, the one down the street will. And so we bounce back and forth. it, it, It is crazy to me that our church has Google reviews about our church. They're good, right? I appreciate that, I've read them. They're good, we got one bad one. It was because uh, there were political signs here on on voting day, which we didn't put up political signs. We actually took them down. Uh, But that was, was, there's Google reviews. It's like like the church is like Yelp, right? Like, so if uh, I went to the church and the server was not real friendly and my food came out a little cold and so I'm not coming back and I, like, I'm going to rate this restaurant now so that everybody knows. This is how we, we actually do this. This is not, I'm not, I'm not being silly about this. This happens all over our culture. It's a consumeristic mentality of the church is for me. The church has to be professional and the church is what I consume until it stops meeting my needs and then I'll press the download button and get something else. And can I just suggest that none of those things are anywhere in the Bible. And can I also suggest that I'm as convicted as this stuff as anybody? 
that as I began to look at Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we're going to be spending the next five weeks, just kind of looking at the church, I've been just as convicted about how we do this as a church as everyone else. And so as we begin to talk about the church, here's what I want you to understand. I don't want to talk at you about the church. I want us to have a conversation about the church. And so as we enter into the next five weeks and we begin a conversation about what type of church are we going to be, how are we going to live out these things, how are we going to be distinct from cultural Christianity and institutionalized faith, how are we going to be a movement of the gospel like the early church was, I want to open up a conversation so that we're all listening to the Father, we're all listening to the Spirit's leading, and we're beginning to talk to one another. So I want to encourage you to email me. I never do that during sermons, right? Because usually the emails are like, you went five minutes long, right? I want to encourage you to email. I want to hear from you guys about what God's saying to you about the church. I want us to work together and figure out how do we become more like the early church. So I want to tell you the tale of two churches. Um, Because when I graduated from college, I took a job as a youth pastor at a church. I was a sophomore in college. I tricked a church into hiring me, and they hired me as their youth pastor. I wore a tie to the interview. I think that's what put it over the top. And and they hired me, and I became their youth pastor. And then I, I graduated from college. Sarah and I got married. Cole was born. And I decided that what I needed to do as a pastor was I needed to find the biggest crowd that I could possibly get in front of. It sounded really holy, right? Like, I'm gonna find the most people that I can possibly reach, and I'm gonna find the biggest crowd. And so I tricked another church into hiring me. Uh, I I was a little more experienced that time. I didn't wear a tie, uh, but I actually kind of knew a little bit. And so they hired me as their youth pastor, and I went to Louisville, Kentucky, and I began pastoring at a church that has around, at this time, 35,000 members. Enormous church, one of the biggest churches in the country. And I was their youth pastor, and then I oversaw their college ministry, and I began speaking at their Sunday night gathering. And at this church, here's, here's some of the things that I learned. I learned that what the church was doing was the number one goal was to get converts. This is a good thing. It's a good thing. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to come to salvation. We want people to come to like this new understanding of who Christ is. And so our number one goal was not to offend or frustrate anybody because we wanted to create this open space for as many people as possible to become converts. Then what we wanted to do is we wanted to convert our converts into volunteers. Because as the church was growing, right, 30,000 people, that's a lot of people coming through. That's a lot of coffee. Right, Harden, that's more coffee than we serve. Right? So there needs to be a certain amount of people to serve that coffee. And as the church grew, there needed to be more people downstairs with the kids to serve the kids. And there needed to be more people with the students. And we needed to big, build bigger buildings and create more structures and create multi-churches in different spots and do all of these different things. And so what we needed was we needed volunteers to serve the crowd. And what we wanted most from people was we wanted them to serve. And so there was often this kind of heartfelt plea for service. Somebody would stand on the front of the stage with like a a skinny baby and say, this baby has no one to hold them on Sundays. Our children are starving in the nursery every single week, and we need... 30 more volunteers today, who will sign up to go hold babies? Or they'd bring up like some hooligan junior hire who had just, right, and tell some story about we need someone to serve our junior high kids. There was this constant push to serve. 
And here's the challenge in all of this. What happens here is there's a giant crowd to be served and there's very few leaders to care. And so what happens is there's a small group of people who carry the whole weight of the church. I was watching game seven of the NBA playoffs last night, Nuggets and Spurs. It's a pretty good one. None of you guys like the NBA. That's all right. It's okay. I know this. I understand. I don't blame you. It's not great. Uh, but there's good things about it. Um, but I was watching game seven last night, and, and I, I like the... It was in Denver, and, and the crowd was going crazy, and everybody was hyped up, and there was all of these people. And I just noticed as I watched the game, there were 10 people on the court and 25,000 people standing in the crowd watching. This is what church here felt like. There were 10 people that were doing the work of the church, and there was thousands and thousands of people that were coming to receive every single week and gather and cheer them on. Way to go. That was a good sermon. That was a good song. That was a good worship thing. Now I'm going to go home and figure out how to apply that to my personal life, but we're not going to talk about how I can help or serve or how I can do anything. And, And what happened is these few leaders became exhausted. Like, you guys realize that the average stay of a pastor at a church is now three years. Uh, I graduated from college, from Bible college, with about 40 guys that went into ministry, guys and girls that went into ministry. Out of those 40, there's about five left. This is the reason why. It's because a huge crowd of people begin to say this is all dependent on one or two or three people's personalities, abilities, giftedness to pull this off, and it exhausts the few leaders that are here. Now, I want to say something really clearly. I'm not opposed to the crowd. Jesus wasn't opposed to the crowd. If you look at Jesus' ministry, if you read through the gospel, Jesus spent a huge amount of time with the crowd But what he did with the crowd was he invited them into something different. So I got exhausted at this church. I I looked around the church and I started to say, you know what, here's what we're doing. We're creating more consumers than we are disciples. I'm exhausted. I'm working 70, 80 hours a week. The church is going great, but my marriage isn't going great. My kids aren't, they don't have their daddy around. I'm, I'm pastoring other people's kids, but I'm never home for mine. And this is not going to work for me. And so I, I did what every 28-year-old, 30-year-old, 35-year-old does when they don't have things figured out as I jumped from one ditch to the other. All right, so I said, like, if the institutional church is about the crowd and it's about organized and it's about um, the show and the professionalism and all of those types of things, then I've got to jump to the completely other ditch and we're going to be the most organic church that there's ever been. We, in fact, didn't even, we didn't even have a gathering. We didn't have a building. We started meeting in, in our home. We're just going to meet in our home, just a few people. We're going to see what happens. We're going to gather in our home. So we started gathering in our home. Um, my, my, friend, my friend Dave Rhodes is the guy, kind of the one who came up with a lot of this stuff. And Dave said he was meeting with a, one of these big churches, and he began to ask them. He said, how much of your time is spent on Sunday morning? How much of your money is spent on Sunday morning? And the church, one of these big giant churches said, like unapologetically, we spend 95% of our money and our time making Sunday morning work. And my friend Dave said to them, I wonder if you're a production company and not a church. So I didn't want to be a production company. 
And so I said, we're going to do something different. And so we, we decided we were going to start with a few and try and grow it into a crowd. Does that make sense? So rather than starting with the crowd and funneling it down, we're going to start with a few and we're going to turn it into a crowd. And, and, and so what we began to seek as we did this was we wanted disciples. This is what Jesus did. We wanted long obedience in the same direction. We wanted to invest in people for long seasons. We wanted to see fruit bear, bearing in their lives and in the lives of others. And we wanted to train disciples to make disciples. Then we wanted not just volunteers, but we wanted leaders. Because a volunteer can set up chairs. A leader can change a culture. A volunteer can hold a baby. A leader can pray for that baby and bring breakthrough in that baby's life. A volunteer can show up on Wednesday night with the students and play games with them and hang out. A leader knows how to disciple students. And so we started saying, we got to create leaders. We got to create leaders. And, and the goal was not to get people to serve. The goal was to get people to discover their mission. What's God calling you to? What's the unique mission that God has placed in your heart and in your life? What's the thing that he's unleashing in you that he's called you to? What's the thing that cries out of your life that you've got to have and that you've got to step into? Our, our, our vision here at Grace Marietta is we want to awaken kingdom dreams, which means we believe this, that dreams don't start here at the pulpit with the staff, that dreams start in the hearts of every single person that attends our church. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the Father has placed a kingdom dream inside every single one of your hearts. And so what happens oftentimes in funnel number one is people come to the pastor and they say, I've got a dream, I've got a vision, pastor, you need to go do this. And when I meet with people, somebody comes to me and says, I've got a dream, I've got a vision, I think we need to start this thing. I always say, that's awesome, how are you going to do it? And people look at me like I'm the weirdest person in the world, and they're like, well, wait a minute, we pay you to do that, not me. I tithe every week, or at least once a month, right? That's your job. My job's to consume and watch the professional show and observe and do all of these things. It's a little cringeworthy, isn't it? All of this is not real fun. So we decided we were going to start and just kind of do a different model. We were going to go with a few, and we were going to go with this leaders, and, and we were going to go with disciples. And, it, and if the crowd is about a customer mentality, the few is about a coaching mentality. I don't want to just have a customer experience over here. I want to have a... a, a uh, a coaching mentality where we're coaching people, where we're seeing people grow, and we're seeing people operate. So we did this uh, in, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, on a college campus. Uh, we started one house church. That house church grew into seven house churches. Um, when it grew into three house churches, we started a Sunday gathering, and we started gathering together. And it was like, we, we were like, we're not doing any institutional things. We're going to be the most organic movement of all time. And here's what we realized this doesn't operate with some kinds of policies and procedures in place. The other thing that we realized is college students don't tithe. <laughs> right? So we would pass an offering plate on Sunday morning. I'm not kidding. We'd have 300 people in the room. One week we had $23 in the offering plate. I promise you. And so what happened was we started to realize, wait a minute, maybe we need the crowd a little bit. And so here's what's happening in our culture right now, is these are the two models of the church, and what we do is we receive these two models the way that I did as a 30-year-old, as it's either or. 
right? We live in a polarized culture where we have no imagination for both and. And so what I began to believe was, I can't do it this way, so I got to do it this way. And what I wonder is, what if we just open up these funnels so that they run into each other? What if we change the paradigm and we say, this could radically transform everything if both of these things are happening at the same time? And can we do that in a healthy way? Can we do it in the way of Jesus? Can we do it in the posture of Jesus? And can we create a place where there are leaders that are being developed? There are disciples that are being made. There are people that are going on mission. But there's also people that are coming to know Jesus in new ways. And we have an understanding that in order to make Sunday happen, we have to have people that help out. You know how we talk about volunteering at Grace Marietta? It's like the meal at Grandma's house on Sunday. Right? You all would be jerks if you went to grandma's house and she cleaned the house, cooked the meal, did all the dishes, um, played with the kids, uh, kept everybody occupied throughout the whole day. Some of you are feeling convicted right now about grandma, right? (laughs) What we do when we get together as a family is in order to make the family meal happen, everybody's got to pitch in, right? So somebody's got to do the dishes because grandma cooked. Somebody's going to bring a salad. Somebody's going to bring a side. Somebody's going to bring a dessert. Somebody's going to bring the drinks. Like Everybody's kind of gathering together to make the family meal happen. Our family meal is Sunday morning. We gather at the table of Christ every single week. And in order for that to happen, we have to have people that help with our kids. We have to have people that hold babies, guys. We have to have people that greet at the back. We have to have people that are making coffee. We have to have all of these things happening so that we can make the family meal happen. Does that make sense? And so what we're trying to figure out is how do we bring these two things together? How do we live in a world of both and? And the way that we look for understanding about the church is always the word of God. So Ephesians chapter four, verse one says this. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's he's in prison. He's in Rome. So Paul has started all of these churches. He's planted all of these churches. Then he went back to Rome, knowing that in Rome, that's where all the persecution of Christians was happening. So remember, the disciples all fled Rome when the persecution started, and that's when the movement of the gospel began in Acts Paul goes back to Rome and says, I'm going to try and do something in Rome. When he goes to Rome, he's arrested. And so he's got all these churches that he's planted and started, that he cares for, that he loves, that he's the pastor of, but he's in prison. And so he's writing what we call the prison letters. There's multiple letters in the New Testament, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, that are all these prison letters where he's writing to the churches and telling them about what's going on. And he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling, which means this, it's what we just talked about. Everybody in the church has a calling. He didn't say, Pastor Steve, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. He didn't say, worship leader Larry, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. He said, all of you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you received. And then he talks about the posture in which the church operates. Here, I believe this without a shadow of a doubt. I believe that the church today oftentimes gets the paradigm right and the posture wrong. I believe that what we do is we're saying the right things, things that are true. We say truth without grace. 
Jesus embodied both grace and truth. He was full of both grace and truth. And so what he's talking about here is this is the way that we live together. This is the way that we live with our communities. This is the posture that we inhabit. And it says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all in all here's what he's saying this is the posture that we carry and notice what he says it's a posture of humility it's a posture of love it's a posture of unity it's a posture of peace i think in a lot of ways we're winning cultural wars and losing cultural people The posture of the church is not a posture of power and overcoming and taking. It's a posture of service and laying down and giving our lives to our world. The posture of the church is not, we've created this great thing, come and see it. It's we serve this great God and we want to go out into the community and show you. It's a completely different posture. And so he says, the posture matters. We've got to carry these things well. And he's teaching the church to be the church. He says, be humble, be gentle, bear with one another, listen to one another. When when, when there's arguments amongst each other, don't just leave and run off and ghost one another. Stay with one another, care for one another, invest in one another, have tough conversations, talk about what's real, do everything that you can to keep unity and keep peace in the church and because the reason we do this is because we serve the same God and the same spirit so the same spirit that lives in me is living in the person that I'm talking to across the table that God is working in me in the same way that he's working in everybody else and he says we don't just serve one God but there is this is one body and this is where Paul begins to to create the be- the most beautiful metaphor for the church which is the church is the body of Christ that we need everybody that everybody brings something to the table, that everybody is a part of what's happening, that if, that if a, a group of people decide we're just gonna sit it out and consume, then what happens is the church is operating as if it doesn't have an arm. And we can't touch the community in the way that Christ wants us to touch the community. Or if a group of people are sitting it out and saying, Do you just, I just need you to serve me, then the church doesn't have the eyes to see the community that they need to see, or we don't have the ears to listen to what the community needs, or we don't have the heart to love and serve, or we don't have the feet to walk, or the strength to lift, or the grace to give anything, because we're, we're a fractured body. And guys, I don't know if there's a more convicting message in the church today than this. We are a fractured body. And we need everybody to come alongside. So everybody is called and everybody brings what they have been given. Verse seven, it says, but to each one, again, not just to the leaders of the church, to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher on all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now this gets a little tricky. We're talking about Jesus coming down to earth, becoming Emmanuel, God with us. And as Jesus came to us, he also gave us a gift. That gift is what? It's the Holy Spirit. The gift that Jesus gives is the Spirit. And so each of us have been given a gift of the Spirit from the Father. 
Each of us have been gifted. And in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of all of these spiritual gifts. Now, Paul lays out a different kind of gift. What, the, what he lays out is what is called the five-fold gifts of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of spiritual gifts. And one of the misunderstandings that we have in the church is we think that they're the same thing. And they're actually different. Because here's what it says. He says, everyone has been given one of the five-fold ministry. So all of us have that. So the best way I've heard to understand this is the five-fold ministry that Paul's about to explain in Ephesians chapter 4 is the cake. <laughs> it's the cake. And the spiritual gifts is the icing. Does that make sense? And so we all have this kind of centered thing that God has called us to. We have this thing that makes us alive, that calls us out to others, that, that speaks to who we are. And then we have these gifts like this icing that makes it a little more delicious. Right? These things that enable us to be a great cake. So there's the icing and there's the cake. And, and so what he's saying here is everybody has been given these gifts. And here's what it says. So Christ himself, he gave, here's the five gifts. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and some to be teachers. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We're not going to spend a lot of time going through those today because that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to spend each week breaking down what do each of these mean and what does it look like for those kinds of folks to operate in the church. Now, can I just suggest that the American church has done a really good job with having pastors and teachers? But we don't have an imagination for how apostles lead in the church. I'm an apostle. And I remember when I was serving at this big church here, the only gift that I ever saw exhibited from anyone that created any value was the teaching gift. So if you could teach, that was like the gift. It was the thing. It was like, oh, you can teach. Just get them signed up for everything, right? And I just kind of went to them at one point and I said, I, like, I, teaching's not my primary gift. I, I'm an apostle and I don't have an imagination for how that works in this culture. Can you help me understand how as an apostle I can lead? Because sometimes we just think an apostle is just like a disciple, but apostle is somebody who has vision to see. They see the future. They imagine things. They dream big dreams. They, they call people to big visions and big projects and they get excited about all these things. And I just didn't have an imagination for how that worked. Um, and, and, and oftentimes the same is true for prophets. Right? We've got people that are able to hear from God and discern what God is saying, but we don't have an imagination of how they work in the body. And, and, and we oftentimes, what we do is we silence our prophets so that our teachers can talk. Right? Shh. We don't want to deal with that hearing from God stuff. We're going to talk about the Bible today. Right? We don't want to talk about that Holy Spirit stuff. He's the weird uncle. We're going to talk about what was said in Leviticus because, right, that we, we kind of have this posture of silence. And then we have no imagination for what an evangelist looks like without a bullhorn, right? I, I used to go to Ohio State football games every year. That's my team, and I'm from Ohio. And, and there's a guy with a bullhorn that stands out in front of the Ohio State games every year. And, and one year I was walking into the game with my dad, and the guy pointed at me and said, you are going to hell. And I said, no, buddy, I'm fine. I am good. I am safe and secure. I am with the Father. I don't need that. Uh, and, and we don't have an imagination of how evangelism works without being obnoxious. Are you with me? And so we're afraid to evangelize in any way because we don't want to be bullhorn guy. And so here's what he's saying. Every single person in the church, I've given you one of these five gifts. 
You have it. And it runs through you. Whether you know it or not, it's there and it's living and it's moving. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to spend the next few weeks talking about how we get out of balance with this. What happens to a church when it's only pastors and teachers? What happens to a church when it's only evangelists and prophets? What happens to a church, God forbid, when it's only apostles? Right? What happens in these situations? Because what happens is the church gets out of balance. It's like trying to live without an arm trying to live without a leg. And so what the church is embodied to do is we need everybody. We need all of your gifts. We need the whole body working and moving. We need everybody's input. We need everybody to move from being the crowd to the few. We need everybody to volunteer and to serve. But we also need everybody to become a disciple and a leader who discovers their mission. That's the heart of the church, is that we're moving closer to him. Dallas Willard said, the goal of a Christian is to take one step closer to the kingdom every single day. I don't need to take 100 steps. I don't need to figure it all out today, but I'm gonna take one step closer to the kingdom every single day. I'm gonna take one step closer to who Christ has called me to be and who he's called the church to be. Now, we're completely out of time, but there's more passages here. So verses 12 through the end of the chapter, well, not the end of the chapter, but through 16 there, it talks, and here's what it says. I'll, I'll, I'll break it down really simple. You guys can read this later tonight. It says, the reason that we are given all of these gifts is for two reasons, unity and maturity. That's why we have it. We've been given these things so that the church would be unified and so that we would become mature. And so it talks about we, we, we don't become a childish church. Like a child who's not fully developed hasn't developed all the things that God wants to stir up in them. The same thing is true of a church. A church that is missing these parts is missing both unity and maturity. And so we're striving towards unity and maturity. We're striving towards all of these things. And what we want, the church's greatest gift, is you being fully alive. Like, do we really believe that? Like, the church's mission is for the people in the church to become fully alive so that they can serve the world. The church's mission is for the people in the church to be activated into the mission that God has called them to so that we can go from this place and serve. Some of our prophets in our midst have told us over the last few years that they have this vision of a giant wave flowing into the church, but then also flowing back out of the church. That's what we want. We want the wave of the Spirit to pour over us, to teach us who we are, to grow us in our competency, to teach us to be more like Him. But we want that wave then to carry us outside these walls so that the church becomes mature enough that we serve the world and not ourselves. We want to become the type of church that isn't about us growing the biggest crowd or having the most professional service or doing the most professional things or having the smoke machine or whatever that is. We want to become the church that's making disciples that are becoming leaders that go out on mission. Like we want to become a place where kingdom dreams are awakened. And where there's this understanding of the collective and not the individual. And, and here's all I want to say. If that's what you're looking for, we need your help. And there's a lot of good things happening at Grace Marietta right now, but I believe without a shadow of a doubt, we will not get to the places that God wants us to go unless people from inside the congregation rise up and become the people he wants us to be. 
I think God's hands on this church. I think there's visions and prophecies and beautiful things in our future, but it only happens when it's us. Uh, and can I just break it? Can I just tell you guys a little secret? Our staff is not that great. We're not. I'm not, I'm not a good enough preacher to draw some giant crowd. We're not good enough leaders to do some giant thing. We're not good enough worship leaders to create a culture of worship. That stuff happens when we become people who want to be the church. It doesn't come because we have dynamic leaders. It comes because we have people who are alive and activated and excited about what Christ is doing. And we create a worship culture. We create a truth culture. We create a service culture. We create a children's ministry culture. We create a youth ministry culture. I would much rather have culture than something that's exciting. Give me culture over Disney World every week. Because culture lasts. I go home from Disney World with an empty wallet and a tired body. When we have a culture of awakening to the Holy Spirit of God and coming alive and what he's called us to and going and becoming, then I'm telling you guys, Cobb County is going to be transformed by what God is doing in this place. So I'm going to pray for us. And, and here's, this is the first time I've ever done this. I'm giving you all homework. Right? If we're really the church, then I'm not the only one that should be studying every week. Can I, can I get an amen? All right. So here's the homework. Um, can we get that up on the screen, Rebecca? Fivefoldsurvey.com. It's a little survey, a little test that you can take that will help you understand if you are a prophet, teacher, evangelist, shepherd, or, or um, apostle. It's just fivefoldsurvey.com. We will put it on our social media this week, and I would love on social media for you just to type out, uh, I took the test, and I'm an apostle. I took the test, and I'm a teacher. I took the test, and I'm a whatever. I would love for a huge list of just us seeing who we've got among us. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about, if you're a prophet, here's how you serve the church. If you're an evangelist, here's how you serve the church. If you're a teacher, here's how you serve the church. If you're a pastor, here's how you serve the church. And I want you to know that when I say serve the church, I'm not saying something self-serving. This isn't about Ben being tired or us needing more help. This is about us becoming alive to what the Spirit is doing in our midst and us going and doing something that matters. So Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would move and work. Lord, we don't want to be a cultural accommodation to what you want the church to be. We want to be your people fully alive in you. We want to be a complete body, not an immature body, not a body that is not complete, but we want to be your full body growing and moving and working. And so I pray that you would breathe and move and work and speak and challenge and convict us all come fully alive in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe dreams over this place, that you would unleash kingdom dreams. I pray at the end of this series that there are people who quit their jobs because you've given them a better imagination for what you want them to do in their lives. I pray that you would allow people to say, I'm moving to a different place because God's called me to something 
bigger than what I'm experiencing here. I pray that you unleash mission into this place. I pray that you give us the deepest heart of compassion for our city and our community. I pray that as we drive our community over the coming weeks, that we would be brought to places of tears because of the way that you are calling us and leading us to serve and to love. And I pray that you would break down any walls or any barriers of consumerism and individualism and professionalization. And you would teach us to be a movement of the early church that goes and changes the world. So Holy Spirit, let it be. Let it be in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. So this week is every week. The tables are open. The bread and the juice is here. The body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ that sets us free. And so we come to the table. And as you come to the table, can I just ask for one simple prayer this week? Could you just say, Lord, speak. And I'm just open whatever it is you want me to do in my life I'm ready to receive it and let's become a church that begins to just listen dwell in what the spirit's calling us to do and let's become a congregation that then goes as we worship come to the table